Today is the last uh, sermon in our series, Me and My Big Mouth, and uh, I want to give you a quick rundown of what we've done over the last month. So week one, we were looking at the words of James, the half-brother of Jesus, in uh, James chapter one, verse 19, and he said, we all need to be quick to listen, slow to speak. And we had these little motions because we were pretending we're back in in preteen retreat times, and so we're going to say, quick to listen, slow to speak. So everybody do that with me. Ready? Quick to listen, and then we're going to do the East Texas accent, slow to speak, right? Now, I asked people this last week, and I was kind of surprised by this. How many of you have had the opportunity to be quick to listen over the past month? Let me see your hands. How many of you have failed that opportunity more than once? Okay, yes, that's exactly the same results we had last week. Hopefully by today, after we've done this for a month, you'll be able to apply these things uh, to your relationships and and be better off. Now, week two, we talked about, um, it was also the the words of James in James chapter 3. And James said, this little slab of meat in your mouth is about four inches long and it has eight muscles and it never gets tired. He said, in fact, your tongue is untamable. No one can tame the human tongue. And so what that means, if, if you can't tame it, it means you need help. So no one can tame your tongue. I need help, right? So you need supernatural help. And we looked at Psalm 141, um, 3, which says, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips because we need supernatural help. Last week, we were looking at Paul. Paul was saying that you should let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. This is in Ephesians, but only what is helpful for building others up. And he said, every conversation that you go through is is like a um, construction site and you're supposed to build and you cannot be a builder if you're bitter, right? If you're holding on to your bitterness, you can't build people up with your words. You're going to tear them down. And last week, somebody wrote on their card and they said, well, yes, but isn't our bitterness directed towards those people who made us bitter? Yes, but bitterness is a poison that spreads through all of your heart, through all of your relationships. And if you're not careful, if you have bitterness in your heart, you will make the people in your life today miserable because of what somebody did to you 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago. So you got to guard what comes out of your mouth. And we said, we're going to do that um, with God's help. Now, here's what you do. If you're going to keep spoiled speech, rotten speech from coming out of your mouth, you have to decide something. Here's the decision you need to make. I decide you don't owe me anything. Because once I do that, once I give you uh, freedom from what you've done to me, it cuts all of the ties to my past, which makes my mouth do some really strange things. I'm going to give people from my past what they don't deserve so that I can give people in my present what they do deserve, which is good words that build them up for the glory of God and, and for the benefit of that person. Because the reason this is such a big deal is because hurt people hurt people. Bullied people turn around and bully other people. Neglected sons become absent fathers or overdemanding fathers. Abandoned daughters tend to become very insecure or very demanding wives. Don't you think for a second that what has happened in your past doesn't affect your present if you're not careful? But here's the good news. Your past doesn't have to affect you anymore. You don't have to be what happened to you in the past. That doesn't have to define your future. And God offers a solution to all of your hurts, your habits, and hangups. It's the same solution. It's one word. It's forgiveness. It works every time. It's the answer every time. Once you have forgiven people, you're free to move on from your past with no more attachment. Now, here's where we're going today. And, and so I want, you to, I want you to understand that when you forgive people, it's for you and for the people around you today. But every once in a while, every once in a while, what goes around comes around. This is not karma. The, the, the universe does not keep score. The universe is an inanimate object. There is a God, though, who says that, that what you plant, what you sow is what you will reap. 
And every now and then, the powerless, those who were hurt, find themselves in a position of power over the person who hurt them. And what you say at that moment will let everybody in your current relationships know the condition of your heart. And I want you to be ready for this. So today I'm going to tell you probably what I think is maybe the second greatest story in the history of the world. The greatest story we just looked at a few weeks ago when Jesus left heaven, he was confined to the womb of a peasant girl, and, and he, the glory of heaven he gave up so that he could come, become a human, put skin and bones on, and die for the sins of the world. Greatest story ever. What I think might be the second greatest story is what I'm going to tell you about today. And it starts with a man named Abraham. Now, when God first appears to Abraham, his name is Abram, and later on he changes it to Abraham, but just to remove any confusion, we're just going to call him Abraham for, for this whole time. God shows up to Abraham. Abraham is a, an idol-worshiping pagan, and God shows up and he says, hey, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. He shows him the, what's the promised land, what is now Israel, and then he tells him, he says, I'm going to bless all of the nations of the world through you, through your son, he has to wait 25 years for the blessing of this son, and this son is named Isaac. Now, Isaac has two sons. He has twins. We're not going to talk about the older one. We're going to talk about the younger one. His name was Jacob. So we're now three generations into this. Jacob is the one that eventually he wrestles with God, and God blesses him and changes his name to Israel, and it's where the Israelites get their name. All the way back here at the beginning of Genesis, in the third generation since God called Abraham, his, his grandson Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. Now, I know some of you are OCD. There you go, 12 sons, 12 sons. There we go. Jacob has 12 sons, and the, the obsessive-compulsive people are counting right now. One, two, three, four, five. There are 12, and, and Joseph is down here. He's number 11. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. The reason he's his favorite son is because he was born to Joseph, uh, Jacob's favorite wife. See, he had two wives, Jacob had two wives, and he had a couple other ladies that, that he had uh, marital relations with, relationships with to get to these 12 children, and Joseph was born from his favorite wife. Now, I just got a, I got a little side note, just a hint to guys today. Never have a favorite wife. I'm just, that's free today, unless she is your only current wife. You know, because I have a favorite wife, one right? I, I've kissed her for 29 years. That's why I married her, so I kiss you anytime I want. <laughs> we watch way too many movies, and we talk in movies. Um, Jacob had a favorite wife, and it caused him all kinds of problems. It caused all kinds of family problems with those 12 children, 12 sons, and we didn't even count the, the daughters yet. Uh, so having this, this, this favorite wife put a, put a target on Joseph's back. Now, the favorite wife was named Rachel, and she and Joseph had, uh, she and Joseph had, jo she and Jacob <laughs> had Joseph after all those other 10 children had been born, and then she has another child named Benjamin, so this is the 12th of the, of the uh, 12 children. Now, the, the 10 older brothers knew that Joseph was the favorite. He didn't hide it. He, he, he made him this multicolored coat, this robe to, so, to show everybody, Joseph is my number one son from my number one wife. No secret about it. And as we talk through this today, this whole story, I want you to judge the words of everybody in this story by this verse. I, I forgot to put it on the, the, the top, so just listen. 
This is Psalm 19, 14. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. I want you to say acceptable. Now listen to who David is praying this, and he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So when our words are coming out of our mouths, who are they supposed to be acceptable to? God. All right, thank you. So I want you to judge that as we listen to this whole story today. Uh, one day, Jacob decides to send his 17-year-old son. Why his 17-year-old son isn't working with his brothers, I do not know, but that's part of the issue here. So the brothers are about 30, 40 miles away. They're, they're tending sheep, and Jacob wants to know about them. So he says, Joseph, come here, my favorite son. Go find your brothers. Find out word, what they're doing, because they're kind of scoundrels, and come back and tell me what they're doing. So as he's traveling along, the 10 brothers see him, and look what they say in Genesis 37, verse 20. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams because he had a dream where all of his brothers bowed down to him and it ticked him off and they hated him for it. And then when dad loved him, they hated him even more. Let's see what comes of his dreams if we kill him. Now, if you're going to kill your 17-year-old brother, are those acceptable words that are coming out your mouth? No, we're not talking about smack him and, you know, throat punch him. We're not talking about giving him a wedgie. We're not talking about giving him a swirly, locking him outside. We're talking about kill him dead. What has to be the condition of your heart if you're going to say our 17-year-old, now I realize teenagers, I get that. But you're saying we're going to kill him. There must be something messed up in your heart. And so one of the brothers says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this empty pit. The Bible actually says that the cistern is empty. I don't know why it gives us this fact that it does. But what comfort is that to a 17-year-old? He's just been stripped of his clothes. His older brothers throw him in an empty well. And then you know what the Bible says the next thing they do is? They sit down to have lunch. How messed up do you got to be to throw your brother in a pit and say, I'm hungry. Pass the PB&J. No sooner had they sat down to eat than they look up and some traders are coming along. New idea. And here it is in verse 27 of Genesis 37. Or 26. Verse 30, Genesis 37, 26. <laughs> Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. Let's just make some money off of him. And let's tell dad he was killed by a wild animal. So they come up with this story. They take his nice robe and they dip it into animal's blood and they go back home and they say, oh, dad, sorry. Your favorite son, he was ripped to shreds. Nothing we can do. All that's left is his robe. And dad weeps. And all the other brothers come. The Bible says they come around him and the sisters, they all come around him. And they say, dad, let us comfort you. And he says, I will not be comforted. And look what it says in, in verse 35. I will continue to mourn until, my son, until I join my son in the grave. Till the day I die, I will cry for my favorite son. So his father wept for him. Now, that is crazy emotional. How do you think the 17-year-old feels? How emotional is he? Because he's been stripped naked. He's been sold to foreigners. He doesn't even speak the language. They carry him off to who knows what. He doesn't know where he's going. How do you think he felt? He's thinking, I'll never see my family again. And then look, the Bible tells us in chapter 39 what happens to him. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the next five words are some of the strangest words in the, in the scriptures. He was sold into slavery to somebody he doesn't know who doesn't know the language. The Lord was with Joseph. To which, if, you're, if you don't know much about 
this, you're going to go, no, 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 no. If the Lord was with him, Joseph would be with his daddy and his 10 evil brothers would be in slavery in Egypt, right? Joseph hadn't done anything wrong. His brothers were evil. They're the ones that need to be in Egypt. But no, the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his, his Egyptian master when his master saw that the Lord was with him. So not only did Joseph at 17 choose to live as if God was with him, he, he lived in such a way that even his master said, God is with him and blesses him. So look what happens. The Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Long before Joseph had a problem, God had a plan. God had a plan long before Joseph had a problem. Say it that way. God had a plan. We learned this in our men's Bible study this, this last week. And as I was studying, I thought, this goes perfectly with this story. Long before Joseph's brothers hated him, God had a plan. Long before he was sold into slavery, God had a plan. God always has a plan. He's always working his plan. And in the midst of this plan, even though Joseph couldn't see what was going to happen, he chose to live as if God was with him, not as if God had abandoned him. And we don't know how long this took. Think, think about it. To learn the language and to, to live in front of Potiphar in such a way that Potiphar says, I can trust this man. God is blessing this man. I'm going to put him in charge. Probably two to three years before he works his way up and he becomes number one in Potiphar's house. Because he, he believed God was with him. He lived like God was with him. And Potiphar noticed. That was problem number one. Before he had that problem, or actually problem number 16 or so in his life, before he had that problem, God had a plan. Now, he has another problem because Potiphar's not the only one who notices him. Mrs. Potiphar notices him. And she is a very powerful woman. She is in, in the, the part of the royal establishment. No one tells this woman no, especially a Hebrew slave. She may not have ever heard the word no in her entire life. And she starts making sexual advances towards handsome Joe. The Bible tells us that he is well-built and handsome. <laughs> and Mrs. Potiphar says, I like ye. And my husband's out. I like what I see. And the Bible tells us that she made sexual advances towards handsome, well-built Joe day after day after day. And this woman who'd never had anyone say no to her had this Hebrew slave refuse. And here's what it says in verse 8. He refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And then look at this. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? God? The God who could have delivered you? When your brother sold you into slavery, the God, you think this God is with you? This God has abandoned you. Well, she just isn't going to take no for an answer. One day, they're the only two in the house. She grabs hold of his robe, and she has taken this young man to bed with her. And he struggles, and he gets out of his clothes, and, and well-built, handsome Joe is running around his skivvies trying to get away from this woman. And she is so mad that he would not have sex with her that she lies about it and tells her husband, he assaulted me. This Hebrew slave is making fun of us. How could you bring him into the house? And look what happens when, his, when Potiphar finds out in verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Remember that, king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, oh no, here we come again. The Lord was with him. 
He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. No, 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 no. See, if the Lord is really with Joseph, then she would be in prison for making a false accusation. He wouldn't be there. Aren't good things supposed to happen to good people? Aren't bad things supposed to happen to bad people? If you're faithful, isn't God going to help you? This says God's with him in prison. And he showed him favor in the eyes of the prison warden? Whoop-dee-doo. That means you got to be in prison to be number one prisoner. I don't even want to know him. No offense if you're a warden. I'll say hi to you. I don't want to be under your care. And I don't want to be the number one prisoner. Things are not going well for you if you have that type of relationship with the warden. So here's what this story tells us. It was written about 3,600 years ago. And here's what it tells us. Bad things have been happening to good people for a long time, longer than you've been alive, longer than I've been alive. But there's an even better thing this story tells us. God has been with good people in bad times for just as long. That's something I can hang my hat on, no matter how bad it is. Remember, we know, we know something Joseph didn't. We know that, that Emmanuel means God with us. He's always with us. We sing about him being with us. Eventually, Joe rises up to number one pr prisoner, numero uno. Again, you've got to be in prison to be that guy. I don't want to have that number, number one. Well, as prisoner number one, he, he gets to know everybody that comes in. And one day, remember the king's prisoners, he's in the king's dungeon. Well, one day, the, the baker for the king and the cupbearer, the baker obviously makes his food. That's a very important job. The cupbearer is the one who would test the drink before the king would have it. So he would drink it. I don't want this job. He would drink it. And a lot of times they'd try to poison the king through, the, through what he was drinking. So take a sip, watch him. If he doesn't die, okay, king, you can drink it, right? That's not a job I want to have, but a very, very important job. If you're the king, you want to trust this guy. Well, for some reason, the baker and the cupbearer are thrown into the king's dungeon where prisoner numero uno is Joseph. And Joseph's a nice guy, and he sees that they're downcast, and he says, what's wrong? And the Bible tells us in uh, chapter 40, verse 8. We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Don't all, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Wait a minute, can you just hear the eye rolls? You're God again? So what if you're number one prisoner? You think God is with you? And he says, I know God is with me. Tell me your dream. So they do. The first guy, the, the cupbearer says, all right, man, I'll give it a shot. Nobody can figure this out. I'll tell you my dream. Joseph says, great news. Potiphar, uh, the, Pharaoh is going to have a birthday party in three days, and he is going to lift your head up, and you're going to be restored to your position, and everything's going to be great. Woo-hoo! The baker goes, nice. Maybe that'll happen for me. And so he tells him his dream. And Joseph goes, <laughs> well, your head's going to be lifted up too off of your body, and then they're going to stick your body on a stake, and you will be dead. Sucks to be you right now. Enjoy the last three days of your life, right? I mean, maybe Joe should have said, I'm not sure about that one. Let me spend some time in prayer. Let's just wait and see what happens. No, he tells him exactly what God said. Three days later, it happens just exactly as Joseph said. Cupbearer restored his position. The baker, head chopped off. His body was stuck on a, on a impaled on a pole. And the cupbearer completely forgot Joseph for two to three years. And do I need to remind you that dungeon years are much longer than freedom years, right? Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and no one can interpret it. 
And the cupbearer goes, funny thing, O king. You remember when, you know, you threw me in prison, but it all worked out, and that other unfortunate thing happened to the baker. (laughs) There was this guy. He interpreted our dreams, and it happened exactly like he said. Maybe you should listen to him, and and Pharaoh's desperate. So he asks for Joseph to be brought before him. Now, you need to understand, a Hebrew slave just doesn't get to come into the presence of a king. A Hebrew slave who's been thrown into the king's prison just does So they have to clean him up. They have to shower him because he smells like dungeon. And they have to put new clothes on him. They have to shave him because the Egyptians didn't even like body hair. He had to get all fixed up. And I'm willing to bet this is the first time he'd ever seen a pharaoh. So they had to, Now you talk like this. You don't speak unless spoken to. And you do all of these things because there's a proper etiquette when you come before a pharaoh. And so Pharaoh says, no one can interpret my dream, but I've heard you can interpret dreams. And so you're with the most powerful man on the planet. Everybody in the court is looking at you. And he says, I've heard you can interpret dreams. And look what Joseph says. Nope. Can't do it. Wait, dude, this guy could free you. Make something up. He says, I cannot do it. And can you imagine, can you imagine the cupbearer? Because the cupbearer's already been to prison one time. And he just vouched for this guy. Can you hear him going, Osef J. Ixnay on the IA Ant K. Hi ho, hi ho, it's back to prison I go. That's what he's singing. Because he vouched for this guy. And he says, nope, can't do it, but look what happens next. I can't do it, but God. Notice there's a capital G. <laughs> This has got to be offensive to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is worse. This this is, he should have just stopped with, I can't do it. Can I go back to my dungeon, please? Because Pharaoh thinks he's a God and he's been told his whole life, you are the son of a God, lowercase g. And Joseph stands up and goes, hey, Pharaoh, you're a little g God. There's a big g God who's going to tell you what you need to know. Pharaoh had to be offended. Everybody in the court had to be offended at this. Get a steak ready. Another guy's going to lose his head today. Maybe two because the the cupbearer vouched for him. But Pharaoh's desperate, so he keeps on listening. And Joe says, the big G God is telling you what's about to happen. And he says, Egypt is about to have seven years of abundance like nobody's ever seen. You're going to have so much grain, you're going to be swimming in grain for seven years. And then you're going to have a famine that's so bad. As soon as it starts, everybody's going to forget about all those years of abundance. And they're going to be wishing they had saved some stuff up. It will be bad. At which point, Joseph should have stopped talking and sat down because he interpreted the dream. But he's not done yet. He leans into Pharaoh. He talks to Pharaoh like nobody talks to Pharaoh. And he goes, here's what you should do next. He gives him advice. He said, you need to find a guy with the gift of administration. You need to build all these storage cities, build these big old silos, because you're going to have so much grain you're not going to know what to do with, and you need to tax everybody 20% of their grain. They're not going to care because they're going to be making so much, but here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh, you're going to become rich because someday during the famine, everybody in the known world is going to come to you for food, and you'll own everything. And Pharaoh's like, I like this idea. You're hired. And everybody's like, wait, what? All the guys second and third in command? You've known this guy for 30 minutes. How can he be second in command? But look what Pharaoh said. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Before Joe ever was sold into slavery, God had a plan. Before Pharaoh had a dream, 
God had a plan, and it involved this young man named Joseph. And see, I, I need to tell you that, that God has a plan before you ever face a problem. And part of his plan is he does this. He trains us through our problems. If you're going through a problem right now, God is training you. If you'll allow him to, he will train you for what he has next. He's always preparing you for the next assignment. If you will be teachable. How do I know that? It's all throughout the scripture. But in the, just in this story, God trained Joseph in Potiphar's house. He learned how to manage one of the king's employees' household. And it's probably a very large household. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to throw him in the king's dungeon. God also trained Joseph while he's in prison. Number one prisoner. Everything happened exactly as Joseph had predicted for Pharaoh. Seven years of crazy abundance. Everybody's rich with grain. And then seven years of unbelievable famine. And there comes a point where the people had to, because they weren't, they weren't saving they needed food, and so what they would do is they would go to Pharaoh. First, they handed him money, traded money for food. Then they, didn't, they ran out of money, and then they would start with their, their smaller animals. They'd trade an animal, and, and eventually they even gave Pharaoh the titles to their houses. So Pharaoh literally owned everything in the known world. It, it belonged to him because what good does a house do? What, do, what good does a horse do if you don't have food to live? He owns it all. And then the story shifts back to another part of the world, a few hundred miles away in the land of Canaan. And guess who ran out of food? It's those wicked brothers who had spoken so many evil words to, over, and about Joseph. They need food. Who knew that would happen? Well, God did. Chapter 41, verse 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, I love this, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? What are we going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? Stop looking at each other. Look what he says. I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some food for us so that we may live and not die. Get your Hebrew heinies to Egypt and buy us some food. That's the East Texas version. Well, the brothers, yeah, okay, dad. They go and they get all the stuff they can. They go to Egypt and they, they have to be a little intimidated as well. And wouldn't you know, they show up in the very storage city where Joseph, their brother, is selling grain to people who don't have any grain. Who knew that was going to happen? Well, God did. They come and they bow down for, in front of Joseph just exactly like Joseph's dreams, like he had predicted in the dreams. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. You know why they didn't recognize him? Because he walked like an Egyptian. Talked like an Egyptian. By now, he's about 38, 40 years old. They sold him when he was 17. Last time they saw him, he was a teenager. Now he's the most, second most powerful person on the planet. And here's the question I need to ask you. What do you do when the tables are turned and you have the power? Your words will determine the destiny of people who hurt you. What are you going to do? Will your words be acceptable in the sight of God? Or are you going to have fish mouth? Are you going to speak horrible words to other people? Well, the answer to that question will depend on what you do between now and then. It depends on what you do with your bitterness and your anger. 
If you hold on to it, you will pronounce judgment and you'll try to get even. If you get rid of it, you'll be like Joe, you'll be like Jesus. If bitterness is still in your heart, you will, you will be exactly like the people you don't like. Joe could have dwelt on the fact that these are the guys who sold me to people in slavery. These are the guys, these are the reason, these guys are the reason I was stripped naked and put on an auction block and people bit on me like a piece of meat. These are the guys, these are the reasons that I was falsely accused and thrown into prison. Right here, right now, I'm the second most powerful man in the world. With a word, he could have said, line up 10 stakes and let's watch these guys die. Let's remove their heads from them, but he didn't do that. Now, for the next three chapters, he puts them through the ringer. By the way, you need to read this. This is in Genesis 37 through 50. This would be a great thing for you to read this week. He puts them through the ringer to see if they're the same guys who sold him into slavery or, or if they have changed. And it even involves his younger brother, Benjamin, because he's probably the favorite now since he was the last child and he was born of the favorite wife. And he makes them go back to Canaan a couple of times and bring things back. And this goes on for months until finally Joseph is is convinced they're not like they're not the brothers they used to be they've changed and suddenly he's in the he, he tells everybody to go out of the room he's alone with his brothers in front of him and the brothers are thinking why is this guy giving us so much attention why is he singled us out and here's what it says in genesis 45 1 so there was no one with joseph when he made himself known to his brothers now imagine imagine the drama in this moment he sends everybody out and then he says this Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And the King James Version said, and they wetteth themselves. <laughs> That's not really what it said. I just got to see if you're listening. Because look what happens next. Joseph asks in, in, in second half of the verse, he says, is my father still living? But the brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence and they were still wetting themselves. Why were they so scared? Because they fully expected he will do unto us what we did unto him because that's the way the world works. We're about to die because of what we did to our brother. The Bible tells us though they didn't have to be terrified in his presence because Joseph for 20 plus years had lived with the belief that God was with him. He had long ago gotten rid of his bitterness and his anger towards his brothers. And, and think about this. Joseph is looking at the future nation of Israel. They're not the nation of Israel yet. But these 12, 10 brothers and then, then Joseph um, and, and his brother. Anyway, the, uh, this is the tribes. And, and think about this. One of the brothers who was there was Judah. Judah's idea was, let's sell him and make some money off of him. Judah is the tribe that the lion of Judah is born from many, many years later. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ. He could have wiped, he could have complicated God's plan by wiping out the, the nation of Israel before it even got started, but that's not what he did. <laughs> he did for his brothers the thing that Jesus Christ has offered all of us. He offered forgiveness. Might just be the second greatest story in all of history, but we're not quite done. Joseph tells Pharaoh, hey, my, my dad's alive. There's about 70 people up in Canaan. They have no food. And Pharaoh says, bring them on. 
Bring them down. Put them in the land of Goshen, which is in the Nile Delta. It's incredibly fertile land. Great place for, for a bunch of people who are shepherds to raise their animals. And they flourish. And they have this incredible family reunion. Joseph's meeting nieces and nephews he didn't even know he had. It is an awesome family reunion for years until Daddy Jacob dies. And then the other brothers go, oh, no. This is what he wanted all along. He's got us right where he wants us. We're trapped in this land. He was waiting on Dad to die. Now we're going to get what's coming to us. And look what happens in, in... Genesis 50, verse 18. His brothers then came, threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Look at this, this sentence. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Remember that word harm. We're going to talk about that in just a second. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And no matter how much you try to hurt me, you can't harm me if God intends it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to, the, to them. The words that came out of Joseph's mouth, were they acceptable in the sight of God our Father? Yes. And you have an opportunity to be just like Joseph, who was like Jesus 1,600 years before Jesus even was born. Now there's a huge difference between hurt and harm. Lots of people have tried to hurt me with their words through the years. Some of them members of this church through the years. Some of them members of other churches through the years. But if God is with me, and God can turn all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, then ultimately you can't. You can hurt me, but you can't harm me. Harm is eternal. No matter what your words are, God says, if you'll believe, I'm with you, and I can make you look. Because it says in, in Romans uh, 8, 28, God, works all things, God causes all things to work together for those who, who love God and are called according to His purpose. And the good He does is in verse 29. He said, those He foreknew, meaning before the beginning of time, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So the, the, verse, the verse doesn't say God causes everything to happen. It doesn't say that everything that happens to you good is good. What it says is, good or bad, God can make you look like Jesus if you believe that God is with you. And that's what God wants. Eternally, what you get to take to heaven is your character. He wants you to bear the family resemblance. And, and quite honestly, most of the time, that happens through problems. So people have tried to hurt me. They've hurt me. But they can't harm me. Not if God is with me. Not if God's purpose is to make me look like Jesus and you look like Jesus. Here's the deal. You will never experience the good that comes from bad unless you recognize God was with you during the bad and you refuse to play God when things are good. When those people are in front of you, you can't play God. Someday you may look someone in the eye who hurt you deeply. You might remember every single detail about that hurt, but God's going to remind you, hey, I was with you during that valley. And if you'll believe that and you believe that he has something better for the future, <laughs> he can do incredible things. But, but here's the question you've got to ask. In that moment, will you pay them back? Because you'll have the opportunity to do that. Or will you be like Jesus? Will you be like Joseph? Will you pave the way forward? Because that's what God wants. 
He wants you to look like his son. And you can't do it when you're bitter. Your decision will be determined not by what's happening to you now or what's happening to you in the future. Your decision will be based on what you do between now and then with your bitterness, with your anger. I hope you're going to take your cue from the one who gave himself to you and not the ones who took something from you. Would you please take your cue from the one who was with you and not from the ones who abandoned you? Because if you do that, you'll be truly free. And oh, the places you'll go and oh, the things you will accomplish for your heavenly father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even in the book of Genesis, we see grace. All throughout your Bible, we see grace. Jesus coming to heaven, it's all about grace. It's all about giving us what we do not deserve. Let us grasp that so that when people who have hurt us but cannot harm us if you're with us, the words that would come out of our mouths would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.